Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, December 9th. We begin with a look at Wednesday's announcement by the federal government that Canada will diplomatically boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. What will this look like and what sort of an impact will the decision have? We discuss with Rachel Gilmore, political correspondent for Global News Ottawa. Next, we look at the findings of new research on the use of artificial intelligence in the world of medicine. We speak with a professor from Waterloo University with a background in AI on how the technology can be used to improve efficiency, particularly in the area of ICU triage. Time to wax up those skis and dust off your snowboard. We catch up with Cole Fawcett, marketing manager from Castle Mountain Resort, ahead of their opening weekend. He gives us details on the upgrades visitors can expect to see on the mountain this season. And finally, it's a chance to shop local from the comfort of your own home. We get the scoop on chambermarket.ca, a new online marketplace that gives Albertans a wide selection of local products and artisans with the simple click of a mouse. Canada has followed in the footsteps of the United States, the UK and other world powers in diplomatically deciding to boycott the Winter Olympics in Beijing. With details on the announcement and what it actually means for us, perhaps here at home especially, we're joined this morning by Rachel Gilmore, political correspondent for Global News in Ottawa. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. How you doing? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you explain kind of what exactly a diplomatic boycott means and does it really do anything? Yeah, so I mean, that's part of the million dollar question, right? Does it do anything? But, you know, first and foremost, a diplomatic boycott is when uh, a state decides not to send any sort of diplomatic official representatives, um, in this case to the Olympics. Um, but it's not a full boycott. So normally there would be these diplomatic representatives going to Beijing alongside the athletes, but that sort of, um, I guess, political part of the equation is going to be missing this year. But, you know, as, as I said, um, the million dollar question is whether this will actually work. China has come out and been quite adamant that it will not have any impact. But, you know, sending a united international message, especially at a time when China is quite sensitive about its international reputation, is not nothing. You know, it's interesting, uh, Rachel, because when you say diplomatic representatives alongside the athletes, uh, outsiders looking in, watching the games, all our eyes are on the athletes. So it seems to me like that the, these diplomatic representatives are just kind of along for the ride. Or are they there for official business? Are there meetings during the Olympics that, that we're unaware of? Or is it just something that has always been done? So it, it appears to me that it's something that's just kind of always been done. You know, they go along, they rub shoulders. It's a great networking <laughs> chance for them to, you know, have those sorts of chit-chats. Uh, you never know who you're going to run into, right, if there's all these diplomatic representatives there. But, you know, this time around, there's not going to be any of those opportunities for, uh, you know, people to run into officials from Canada, the United States, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand. So, you know, it, it is sort of something that, um, you know, you never know in these sorts of uh, meetings what's going to come up and what business can get done you know it doesn't always take an official scheduled meeting to make that happen um so you know whether they were going to be official or not there's this little piece of the kind of international political uh, dynamic that's going to be missing this time around yeah it's interesting too rachel because china said oh yeah we don't care you weren't invited anyway it doesn't matter to us but at the same time the other day said you know the u.s oh, you'll pay for this you know this is you'll, you'll feel the heat 
state as a response to it. So we know that's kind of what China's thinking. And, and what what are we hearing from more at home in terms of when the announcement was made, it seems like the official opposition said that the prime minister was slow to make that decision. And, and what else has been said from them? Yeah, so the, the opposition has been calling for this boycott for some time now. If you remember, there was a vote in the House of Commons regarding the, um, you know, declaring that the uh, treatment of the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region of China, um, there was a call to declare that a genocide. And the Conservatives at that time actually brought up the issue of a, a boycott of the Beijing Olympics. So it has been something that the Conservatives have been saying for quite some time now. Um, and, you know, I think that they are... Uh, pointing out that that this could have been something announced all that time ago. But I will say in matters of diplomacy, and especially with respect to China, Canada is, you know, as much as we don't like to admit it, we're we're a smaller nation compared to, you know, the U.S. And uh, we have a lot more power when it comes to states like China um, when we work together with other nations to kind of, you know, it it grows your numbers. There's always power in numbers, Mm -hmm. right? So um, it's, it's kind of the jury's out on whether we should have done anything sooner per se. But the Conservatives definitely had the idea a while ago and they can brag about that. You know, it's interesting you say, you know, kind of a strength in numbers. That's the impression I'm getting, Rachel, you're saying that when we hop on, a, you know, a cause. But individually, you know, we look at the past couple of years with Huawei, the two Michaels, obviously our relationship with China was already strained. It, uh, I guess we can assume that this move will heighten tensions uh, moving ahead when it comes to relations with the uh, superpower. Well, it's definitely not going to give China, you know, renewed warm fuzzies towards us. Uh, China did say that uh, they came out last night at about 2.30 in the morning, and they said that these countries who are participating in the diplomatic boycott will, quote, pay the price. And we have seen um, that China um, is not afraid to, uh, you know, slap sanctions, engage in arbitrary detentions. There's all kinds of things that they appear to be willing to do that are out of the norm with the kind of international order and what you can generally expect from a lot of other nations as they engage in diplomacy and express discontent. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what we'll see per se. Um, China is also saying that they don't care and that it's a farce. So we'll see which side of that wins out for China. Rachel, have we heard any response from the athletes in terms of this diplomatic boycott, if it means anything to them, or do they just go about their business and, and uh, you know, kind of focus on the sport, obviously, side of it? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's a difficult one for the athletes. Um, I think a lot of them don't really want to uh, get involved in the politics of it. I know one of my colleagues was actually trying to contact quite a few of them yesterday to ask for their opinions, and, you know, they all declined to speak about it. They was, I think they want to focus on winning medals and bringing those back to Canada. But former Olympians who um, competed in prior games, uh, they say that this is actually a sign of progress. I mean, if you look back in 2008, there was a massive sort of political action in Beijing um, or in China and the Tibetans, they were protesting and China was cracking down on them. And the world did nothing, you know. Um, and what ended up happening was even the U.S. president went to the 2008 Beijing Games. And after that, things really escalated in Tibet. And one Tibet Canadian who I spoke to yesterday said that China seemed to take that lack of international action as permission. 
you know, as sort of almost encouragement. Um, and that things got a lot worse in Tibet after that. So, you know, um, I think that the Olympians are right to call it a sign of progress. Interesting situation. I guess we'll see as the games get closer uh, how things unfold. Thanks for your time this morning, Rachel. Thank you. That's Rachel Gilmore, political correspondent for Global News Ottawa. I did hear this morning that uh, the RCMP and the Canadian government are working to make sure that there's a security contingent that will go with the athletes to make sure they're safe. Because let's face it, uh, there have been a lot of uh, abuses happening in China. Uh, The two Michaels are the perfect example. So you want to make sure that our athletes go, they compete safely. And every single one of them comes back home, right? Uh, yeah, and I personally don't think this sends a clear enough message, but I do see the position of the athletes 100%. This is your heart and your soul. And yeah, we punch the clock, go into the office, but to these athletes, that is their it's career. It's everything. I, I don't think it's fair to take that away from them. I think it's, I think, you know, what Rachel said too, with Canada, obviously, if we just did it on our own, What's it, it would mean? mean nothing. But if we all join forces with, you know, various countries and everybody sends a, a bigger message to China, perhaps, you know, because they would want to save face, that does not look good to them, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. I just think that, well, the, the big picture and something we've delved into, and I think it was, kind of forgotten because it happened not too far before the pandemic, the vote to have the Winter Olympics back in Calgary. I think that, and the reason I think, I believe Calgarians did not want to was the IOC, the whole Olympic model needs to be looked at. And mm-hmm. maybe we need to look at who we're awarding these countries to. But if, oh, if, for con- sure. if countries like Canada don't want it, they have, to, they have to be played somewhere. So this is probably a much bigger picture issue. What applications could artificial intelligence have in the medical field? Well, new research from Waterloo University in partnership with Darwin AI believes that artificial intelligence could be used to make better use of ICU beds during the pandemic. With more information, we are joined by Alex Wong, professor at Waterloo Waterloo University and Canada Research Chair in AI and Medical Imaging. Good morning to you, Alex. Good morning. Within your research, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, identifying patients requiring an ICU using that AI. How, how, would, how would something like that work, Professor? Sure. <clears throat> Happy to tell you. So pretty much what we did was we used something called machine learning. Uh, it's a form of AI where you actually teach it based on past historical cases. So what we did was we teach an AI using past patient things like, you know, vital signs, blood test results medical history and so on and so forth. So it learns from these past cases so it can actually predict the necessity for ICU admission. Professor, when I hear AI, I think a robot and I probably am wrong and that's not what you're talking about. So when, you, when, you're, when you're kind of using AI in this instance, what, what do you mean? Yeah, so when we're talking about AI in this case, it's really not like a physical robot, but you could treat it as kind of like a, a artificial brain that's able to ingest information and then provide decisions as well as recommendations. In this case, recommendations to the doctor whether or not a, a patient needs to be admitted to ICU. So treat it more as kind of like those chatbots that you see where you ask it a question and it'll actually give you a reply. This is Alex Wong, professor at Waterloo University and research chair in AI and medical imaging. And Professor Wong, I'm wondering, at, kind of to Sue's point, I think there's some trepidation from people thinking, you know, AI, uh, I don't want a computer to, to help decide my fate, but uh, I'm assuming that it is in tandem with humans, with doctors and experts in the field uh, checking on these devices. 
that's exactly it. And that's actually our approach. The goal is not for AI to make decisions, but to actually provide a clinician with the information. And so, for example, what we build is something that we call an explainable AI. And that's actually very important. So rather than having a black box AI that tells you, hey, this person needs you know, to be admitted uh, you know, ICU, and that's it. Uh, what the explainable AI does is say, this person needs, I would recommend that this person be getting ICU admission because of you know, concerns about their heart rate, their sodium levels, there's past history that this person is immunocompromised, low sodium, potassium levels. That's the kind of information that, that instills this sense of trust as well as provide well-informed decisions for clinicians to make their decisions. So you put enough information into this brain, it can help doctors and experts make better decisions, perhaps. How does that relate to making better use of ICU beds, then, for example? Yeah, that's a very good question. Because deciding whether a patient should be admitted for ICU, it's actually a very difficult decision. And it's very subjective. And so with the help of AI, which actually learns from many different sources, from many different hospitals and so, on and so forth, it's able to then take this information and provide a recommendation that a clinician might not be able to see. And so this just helps for greater consistency as well as potential improvements in decisions being made. And so if the right people actually get uh, you know, ICU admission, then this means that the resources are used uh, to its maximal impact. I'm wondering, because being a professor at Waterloo University, uh, you know, Professor Wong here, um, let's talk about how this changes education, a typical education for a, a nurse, a doctor, or a healthcare worker when you're bringing in this kind of technology. I'm thinking it might look vastly different than somebody who went through the process 15 years ago. Oh, m- most definitely. And that's where continued education really comes into play. And the beauty about this is not just us trying to say, you know, clinicians, you need to learn about AI. Many of them are actually learning about it, and they're actually very interested because at the end of the day, they want to provide better quality care for patients and any new technologies that help them make better decisions faster in a more consistent way, they're very open to it. And so I go around to different clinicians and actually educate and actually train them in the use of this kind of AI so they have a much better appreciation and better use of it. So other than the ICU beds side of things, AI, what other applications within medical fields could we see that or or could you and your workmates see that kind of expertise helping you out? So as part of part of our broader COVID net initiative, this is just one particular piece. We already have AI that helps clinicians to decide whether a person has a severe condition, uh, the types of treatment that they should take. Uh, we've applied it beyond just COVID to things like tuberculosis, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, as well as for cancer detection, as well as treatment planning for cancer. So there's a wide range of different things that AI can really help along the entire clinical workflow. I'm wondering, Professor, you know, it's interesting because we've uh, learned a lot about, you know, the medical community, not just in Canada, but across the globe during the pandemic. And uh, we learned that, you know, we had some shortcomings when it came uh, to vaccine production in our country. When it comes to AI, you know, how how do we stack up against other countries in the world? Are we uh, up to par or do you think that Canada has to do more when it comes to artificial intelligence in medical field? 
Yeah, I think uh, Canada is actually one of the leaders in artificial intelligence in the medical realm uh, because uh, I guess the Canadian culture is very open. So, for example, even in this COVID net initiative that we have, everything is open source, open access, free for anyone around the world to use. And I think it's this openness that really sets Canada apart as one of the leaders in AI because not only are we building great AI, but we're helping to disseminate across the entire world. Brilliant. I think there have been uh, some good and some positive things that have come out of this pandemic, and perhaps the use of AI is one of them. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Professor. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Professor Alex Wong, Waterloo University and Canada Research Chair in AI and Medical Imaging. I'm with you, and I've seen those movies. One, I think, is called iRobot or something with uh, Will uh, Smith, and, and, and there's a Robin Williams movie where there's a robot walking around AI, and he voices that robot. That's what I had in mind. Always, I think AI. But I think a robot. You think maybe because I want one because we were children watching sci-fi movies <laughs> growing up, it. and the Jetsons. Yep. But you know, I like to think now that we've talked to Professor Wong there about meteorology and forecast models, whereas you might have five or six different simulations, and it's very similar to what do they call it when they have COVID projections and they have these, um, uh, now it's escaping me. They say we have, we're looking ahead four or five months and there's projections. And, I know what you mean yes. too. Yep. I mean, yeah. Well, simulations, yeah. I think simulations is works as so, well. Yeah. Within the weather, for example, a forecast, will look at what the temperature is and the atmospheric pressure thousands of feet above the earth. You look at the, the jet stream, put all these variables in. And then as things change, you do tweaks in four or five different models. You look for a consensus. So I can understand now, I think, in my non-medical mind, what Dr. Wong was talking about. Well, me about. too, right? The, picturing it as a super brain where yeah. you can store all this information. Here's that, the blood pressure. The Here's the temperature. the brain can yeah. pull the information far better and faster than our human brain can. It's really fascinating. Castle Mountain is opening up for skiers and boarders tomorrow to find out all about this year's upgrades and health and safety protocols for you to hit the slopes. We're joined this morning by Cole Fawcett, sales and marketing manager at Castle Mountain Resort. Hi, Cole. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Exciting, I bet, opening up tomorrow. Is that right, first of all? That's right. Okay, We've good. Been working hard to get here. Yeah, no doubt. Let's talk about it. Why you guys are a little bit later opening and getting people up onto the hills. How come? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, we open a little bit later than our uh, resort cousins in Banff. Uh, we are a little bit further south and a little bit further to the east. So uh, in general terms, that's that's part of why we open later. And uh, we're not a world-renowned tourism destination. So you don't have the critical mass in Banff that, uh, uh, well, as, as opposed to Banff. Sure. Um, otherwise, things are a little bit slower this year than we intended because of weather. Uh, we've had a couple of events that brought some of the, shall we say, wrong type of precipitation over the last few weeks, um, and it has been a, a bit warmer than expected. But we've been making snow at every opportunity since uh, the latter part of October. Let's talk about the upgrades, what people will see differently this year, Cole. Yeah, so, I mean, the biggest upgrade in this off season is, uh, is more snowmaking, which uh, seems like it's uh, well-timed. Uh, we added some snowmaking to the main mountain, most specifically the lower portion of the North Road. For those that are uh, familiar with Castle Mountain Resort, uh, that's a 1.1-kilometer addition of underground snowmaking infrastructure. We added new pumping capacity. We can now pump uh, more water up the mountain to make snow with than we ever have in the past. 
um, about a more than a million gallons a day, actually. Wow, that's which is a pretty awesome. impressive number. Yeah. Okay. How about health and safety protocols for people who want to hit the slopes? What's it look like? Yeah, uh, things are a little different again this season. Uh, Castle is going to continue to limit the number of day tickets that we make available. That was something that worked really well for us last year. Um, we know things are different than last year, that vaccination rates are, are, are a thing. You know, last season, as we headed into the season, there were very few individuals who were, who were fully vaccinated. Um, but one of the great things about limiting the number of people on the mountains on a daily basis is that you're pretty well guaranteed to find a reasonably close parking spot, a seat in the day lodge uh, when it's lunchtime, and uh, keeps lift lines to a minimum. So that's a big change. Aside from that, the restrictions exemption program applies to indoor spaces uh, that would be considered dining spaces, which would be the main portion of the day lodge, the T-Bar pub, as well as our cat skiing operation and uh, snow school programming. But the question we get asked so often, do I need to be vaccinated to go skiing? The answer is no, but some elements of the experience will be off limits to you if you can't uh, can't provide us with proof of vaccination or some other avenue that's consistent with the restrictions exemption program here in Alberta. Perfect. Thanks for the clarity, Cole. And yes, uh, counting down the minutes, uh, opening tomorrow, strap on those boards <laughs> and to get on out. We're going to send people to skicastle.ca. Thanks, Cole. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cole Fawcett, sales and marketing manager at Castle Mountain Resort. And it's holiday market season. So if you want to support local from the comfort of your home and avoid the crowds, there's a new online marketplace that's just launched in the province. Ken Cobley is CEO of the Alberta Chambers of Commerce and joins us with some details. Hi, Ken. Hi, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for being with us. Tell us about this, because I think this is going to be appealing to a lot of people. We want to support local. We want to do what we, we can to, to help people who have had a difficult go business-wise through the pandemic, and this is a great way to do it. It is. You know, uh, we launched this um, this website, this platform, about two days ago, and the take-up has been fantastic. Uh, we've been in development for this, uh, this, this day for about a year now. Uh, when we got in and saw the long-term effects of the pandemic, we recognized that a lot of our retail certainly was suffering. A lot of our service providers were suffering, and many of them didn't didn't have an ability to sell their products online through e-commerce. So that was the impetus of it. Uh, we developed it in conjunction with our community chamber network, and we've now rolled it out to where we have in excess of 100 vendors, business local businesses. Uh, that have offerings of about 1,400 distinct products. So that's where we are today. Uh, we're seeing um, really substantial growth over the last couple of days, and and uh, this this marketplace will continue on past Christmas into hopefully for many years to come. Ken, can you give us some examples of of the vendors, the types of those products that are being offered, and and how are they chosen? Because it's a great opportunity, I would think. You know, businesses, local businesses that want to sign up uh, will approach their community chamber or if their community chamber is not participating, um, they can um, basically there's a, something on the website where they can go in and they can uh, ask for contact. Um, the range of products is really quite wide. We have a, a lady, I believe, in, based out of Airdrie that has beautiful jewelry that she's selling, rings. We have woodwork, uh, leatherwork. Um, we have food. Uh, a lot of one of our vendors is actually a farmer who's um, um, shipping his fresh pork. Uh, so f- uh, basically, farm gate to the consumer. Um, we have 
folks on there who are sell, selling wine kits. Um, it, it is just the range is simply unbelievable. Awesome. Great way to support local, as we said, Ken. How do we find the information? How do we find this marketplace? Uh, you just go to chambermarket.ca. Chambermarket.ca. I'm going now to finish my shopping. And uh, as she does her shopping, the, the longevity of this, and that's something you mentioned. Uh, you know, the yep. fact that you've got everybody together. This is going to be 365 days a year, not just a holiday thing, not just for gifts, but you know, products we'll use every day. That's correct. And, and, you know, we look forward to adding to the range of products. It is really quite diverse right now. Um, and the one thing that's important, I think, is that this um, chamber market is open to all of Alberta. Uh, we have products listed from Lloydminster, Airdrie, Lethbridge, um, up north, uh, and it, so it is wide-ranging. In, in a lot of cases, it's also um, uh, an awareness campaign with a lot of the businesses that are in your community, particularly in smaller communities, if they're operating, say, out of their house, mm. um, a lot of their local uh, purchasers may not even know that they exist. So the main main reason why we launched this campaign, aside from providing an e-commerce platform, was to create awareness of the small businesses and medium-sized businesses in your own community. Brilliant. Love it. Thank you so much, Ken, for sharing with us. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. Ken Cobley, CEO of the Alberta Chambers of Commerce. And again, the website, chambermarket.ca, and they bill it as a one-stop shop for buying local, easy and convenient, bringing together all your favorite Alberta makers in one place, chambermarket.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.